There's a wonderful parable that Jesus tells that I think, I think is a, a great uh, parable to kick our time off. But it's a story of the king that had a, re- a wedding reception for his own son. And you remember the story. Let me just read it. It says, The kingdom of heaven, out of Matthew 22 and Luke 14, is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent out more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. And, and, and I think the, the, the words that Jesus chose here are very important. Because he's saying that even if the king himself invites his own subjects to his son's wedding reception, that people aren't just going to show up. And sometimes that's our model for church. We have a very attractional model for church. We just think of people, we just invite people to come to church, you know, that they will just show up. And if they don't show up, then we want to let them know what we have on the menu, just like the king did. Tell them, you know, that, uh, that the wedding banquet is already prepared. You know, we got in Paula Dean cooking with tons of butter and lard and sugar. You know, and Emerald Lagasse and, and uh, um, you know, Bobby Flay and, and, and the rest of them. And the best cooks are there. And that's when we say as a church, we say, you know, we have, we have really, we have, do have life-changing preaching. We've got a youth program that's so good your kids won't want to leave it. We've got uh, children's workers that are so caring that it'll be hard to pull your kids away from them. And even letting them know the best things on the menu, it says still, it says one by one people began to make excuses, said so they paid no attention, and each went on his own way. And one said, uh, um, he said, I've just bought a business, and I've got to go take a look at it. Another said, I've just bought five yoga locks, and I've got my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. I'm going on my honeymoon. So fortunately for the king, the success criteria was not, does everyone know what time the banquet is, or does everyone know what's on the menu, but is the banquet hall full? And Because the banquet hall was not full, then he augmented his come-to strategy with a very creative go-to strategy. So then it says, then he said, go out into the streets and alleys, go out into the roads and country lanes, so that my house might be full. And I want to say this afternoon that, that I think we need to be, as church leaders, as ministry leaders, the very best, have the very best attractional model that we can have. In other words, when people show up, that they say, you know, everything that you said this was going to be, it was, and more. We kind of like, we're like the Queen of Sheba. But know this, we'll never be reaching all that we can be reaching unless we augment our aggressive come-to strategy with an aggressive go-to strategy. Does that make sense? I want to talk this, morning, this afternoon about, about five characteristics of externally focused churches. And the first one is this, is that these churches believe that their communities can't be healthy apart from the engagement of the church. By the way, you've got notes there, and I've got four slides that I thought would be really hard to explain without a visual, but this one is not one of them. But, the, uh, but most churches, um, you know, or, or many, many, many churches have, have either physically located outside their community or they're emotionally located outside their community. That they've, uh, in our own community of Boulder, Colorado, in 1967, we have a church historian that says the church basically withdrew from our community because it was told that it was not wanted. And it was irrelevant. It had nothing to contribute. 
And so we said, fine, we'll just go form our own community. So we formed our own clubs, our own organizations, and, and basically our own Christian schools began hanging out with Christians. To the point that when we did a community study identifying the top five problems in our community, and when they talked about the solutions, nowhere was the faith community mentioned. And when we pointed out to the authors of this document, they tried to apologize and said, well, we're sure it's here someplace. And we had read it through and outlined the points. We talked about who would, who would be involved in the solutions. And when they apologized, they said, the fault's not yours, the fault's ours, because we're the ones that, that has withdrawn. Why do we withdraw from the community? Sometimes because we don't feel wanted. Sometimes it might even be some theological reasons. Do you remember the, the Greek word for, for, uh, for church? Some scholars here? What is the Greek word? Ekklesia, yeah. Oftentimes I say up until I learned that word, I only used to know two words in Greek. One was agape, and the other one was baklava. So under the right circumstances, I could talk about I had a passion and unconditional love for Greek pastry, but that's not, that's not the time. But ekklesia, and it means the called out ones, and it's usually put together uh, with the other verse that says, come out from among them and be ye separate. But the separation that the scriptures talks about is not a physical separation because you cannot be salt, light, and leaven at a distance. Those are agents that only work in transformation up close. But I think it was talking about a, a separation and lifestyle. A friend of mine said this. He said, you know what the first book that's translated after the Bible when the gospel enters a culture? And I had no idea. And he said, it's the book Pilgrim's Progress. And even if you've never read the book, we're all familiar with the storyline. It's escaping the wicked city in pursuit of the celestial city. And is it possible that that's what megachurches are trying to create, celestial cities? It's a place where you can have your lunch after church. It's a place where your kids can be educated. It's going to be where your small group's from, where your circle of friendships come. It's a way of avoiding the community around us. In the year 150, there was a letter written by, the name, by a man named Mephetus, to his, friends, his friend Diognetus. And it's one of those extra-biblical epistles that I don't think it made the cut, not because it had bad theology, but because it was too hard to pronounce. You know, turn to the epistle of Methetus to Diognetus. You know, you wouldn't get, people would not become Christians just because they couldn't pronounce that name. <laughs> but but, the, but, but in, this, in this letter, he describes the lifestyle of the second-century Christians. And towards the end of the letter, he says this. He says, as the soul is to the body, so Christians are to the world. And that's the first time in print he describes believers as being the very soul of a community. Now think about it. If you take the soul out of a body, what do you have left? Nothing but a corpse or a shell. And if the church withdraws physically, psychologically, emotionally from the community, what would we expect to happen to our communities? exactly what is happening to our communities. They're becoming, they're becoming cities without a soul. We had a mayor in Boulder two mayors ago, three mayors ago now, a woman named Leslie Durgan. And, and what she described when she was asked the question, she was asked this question, she says, as you leave office, do you have any concerns? What's your greatest concern? And she said, I fear that Boulder is a city without a soul. And what she was using, she was using secular language to describe the phenomena that Boulder has the highest per capita income of any community in Colorado, but the lowest per capita giving. The highest per capita income, but the lowest per capita volunteerism. And she described it as being a city without a soul. So just like we have an uh, identity truth of who we are in Christ, identification truths of who we are in Christ, that I'm, I'm a joint heir with Christ, I'm seated in the heavenlies with Christ, 
um, you know, that, that, uh, that we also need an ecclesiology that informs us that even though we may not feel wanted, even though that sometimes we're told that we're irrelevant, we do not have the right to withdraw from our communities because our communities cannot be healthy apart from the engagement of the church. The second thing externally focused churches believe is they believe that Christians don't grow until they begin serving. Now, I didn't say they couldn't learn. I think we learn a lot from good Bible study and good preaching and good teaching, uh, good personal Bible study. But we don't grow until we convert that knowledge into action. Uh, sometimes we think, you know, it's the, that the Bible is called the spiritual food, when food is certainly essential to growth and health, but it's not the only thing that's required for growth and health. Um, in the book that Rick and I put together, I tell a story of uh, being at a conference, and a friend of mine came back to the table with a big old plate of bacon and eggs and sausage and told me he was starting a diet that day. And so I, I chuckled at him, you know, and I said, sure, you know, what kind of diet is that? Then he told me about this thing called the Atkins diet. How many have been on the Atkins diet? For a man, okay, what's this? Is it Dave right there in the front? Is that the greatest man's diet ever? You know, so he told me about it, and it sounded logical. So I, I remember creating a big plate of bacon and sausage, and during the meetings, anytime I just get a little bit hungry, like I'd eat a piece of bacon and then a sausage. I went back to work. I bought a 10-pound ham, or I'm sorry, a 10-pound block of cheddar cheese and a whole ham, put it in the refrigerator at work, and anytime I got a little hungry, I'd, I'd slice off a couple slabs of each and, and eat it. And uh, the only thing, you know, at night I'd lie down, and I'd hear my heart go boom, <laughs> But I was convinced I was getting healthier because the science behind it was supposed, it told me it was going to be healthy. The problem, the, the thing that makes you fat is carbohydrates. So I didn't even eat a communion cracker. I mean, I did not eat one carbohydrate for two weeks in induction phase. I got on the scale at the end of two weeks, and I gained nine pounds. <laughs> and, uh, and then I got on the Internet and found out that 5% of body types don't respond to the Atkins, Atkins diet. Now I was even more bloated than I was before. But the point I'm making in all that is that you can eat healthy food, but that doesn't necessarily make you a healthy person because you also need exercise. And I believe all of us have a default, a de facto spiritual growth or spiritual formations um, uh, plan, and it goes something like this, that given enough truth and given enough time, that's how we change and grow. And so if we're not growing, we just need more spiritual food. We, know the, we need another source of input. We're always just one, we're just one sermon away from having our life complete. We're just one book, one conference away from getting our acts together. And yet, and yet if you think about it, the verse that Rick and I camp out on quite a bit is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and Ephesians 10. We all know that the heart of the gospel, when we're sharing the gospel, the, the basis of the Reformation was Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. By grace, God giving us something we don't deserve, appropriated through faith or trust. It's a gift which by definition can't be earned or deserved. God gives this to us. And that, that we're saved, apart from works that we can never boast about. We'll never do anything that merits salvation. And I believe that when we ask Christ in our life, we trust him for our salvation, that we get all of God in our lives that we're ever going to get. And he fills that vacuum that Pascal identified when he talked about the God-shaped vacuum being in the heart of every person that cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God our creator made known through Jesus Christ. But there's more to this verse. Because even though there's a period at the, verse, uh, at the end of verse 9, verse 10 begins with the word for which links the two together. 
And it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to what? Do good works, which he prepared in advance or beforehand that we should walk in them. Now think about it. The very fact that he's created these works beforehand creates a vacuum, right? That means that these works are ours to discover, not ours to invent. See, all of us are different. All of us are unique. Um, It says that we are his workmanship. The person to your left or your right, in front of you and back of you, is completely different than you. And God has made you with your passions and your gifts and your abilities and your desires and your want-tos. You know, but God, that passage says that there's something that God has created us to do that when our passion intersects with his purpose, we feel fully alive. When our passion intersects with God's purpose, it's that place where we feel fully alive. I was, um, when I was first getting involved in this, we began to see that, that, that as, as church is engaged in community, we didn't need to start new organizations. But if there was an organization in town that we could partner with, that we believe that we could partner with anybody uh, that was morally positive and spiritually neutral. We didn't need to waste kingdom resources on, on creating a competing or parallel organization. And so I, I called a, a woman that runs something called the Boulder Volunteer Connection in our community, and I said, could you prepare a list of agencies that you think might be good church partners because I think churches are going to start getting more involved in the community. And then I invited two volunteer coordinators from two different churches with me to meet her for lunch, and we sat, she sat, we sat down. She slid the list across the table, and, um, and I thought, ah, she just doesn't get it because the list was alphabetized, and the first category was animals. I said, well, Laura, I'm not sure that these are going to make good church partners. Like, what's this first one? The thing, first thing that caught my eye was something called Medicine Horse. And I said, you know, it sounds kind of new agey. And, you know, she said, well, before you dismiss that, let me tell you a little bit about it. This is an agency that works, or that adopts cults that are born to mares who are impregnated only because when they're pregnant, they produce a hormone that's used for this drug. And when the, when the, uh, um, after the cults are born, then they're destroyed. Says, but this agency adopts those colds, and then they work with abused children. And they said, she said they found that the children who have been abused, nursing, bottle feeding these colds from birth on up through horse adulthood, and, and feeding them every day after school, and bathing them, and, and cleaning them, cleaning up after uh, cleaning up after them after school. She said has an absolutely redemptive effect on the life of these children. Well, the woman on my right about came out of her seat. She said, you know, I re- grew up raising show horses, and I love kids. How can I get involved in that today? See, I'm ready to dismiss that as not being real ministry, because usually the things that we measure as ministry are the things that are done inside the church. It's teaching a Sunday school class or a small group. It's being on the worship team. It's ushering. It's greeting. It's serving on a board. It's those things, and by that we say about 20% of our congregations are active. But it could it be that the way that God has distributed the gifts in the body, that God intends for about 20% of people to kind of run the internal stuff, but 80% of the people are going to find their intersection of passion and purpose outside of the walls. Is that possible? That's what we as leaders need to free people up to do. I was with another pastor out in Southern California. It was a couple weeks after Katrina. And he said, um, his name was... Uh, uh, Casey and, and, and Casey got a phone call, and he said, I got to take this phone call. We're sitting at Starbucks, so I said, well, I'll just check my Blackberry. And, 
And as we were talking, I, I kept hearing him use this word, chainsaw. Chainsaws, chainsaws, you know. So he gets off the phone, and I said, what was all that chainsaw talk? And he smiled, and he said, it's kind of funny. He said, we've got this guy at our church that loves chainsaws. In fact, the guy collects chainsaws. He said, the last woodcutting project that we had, he would work 18-hour days, wait till the lunch line gone already down, all the way down, grab a sandwich, and be out working again within five minutes. And we just got a call from a sister church down the Gulf Coast that said, could you come down and help us cut trees that have fallen in elderly people's homes? We have lots of chainsaws. If you break them, we'll replace them. But we just need some people that can really handle these, uh, these chainsaws. Now imagine Clayton showing up to work on Monday morning. And he's got a grin from here to here, you know, ear to ear. And people say, Clayton, what are you so excited about today? What are you so happy about he said, well, I just got back from five days of the Gulf Coast where I cut down trees that have fallen in the homes of elderly people for 18 hours a day, you know, for five days, and I really think that God used me. And the coworkers will shake their heads. They'll say, I don't like cutting trees. I don't like chainsaws, but I wish there was something that put a smile on my face is the biggest one you're wearing. See, because what happens is John Eldred says, don't ask what the world needs but ask what makes you feel fully alive because what the world needs to experience is people who are fully alive. Now, in your fellowship, in your church, in the group that you hang out with, can you imagine the evangelistic impact of a congregation full of people that have found that intersection of their passion, their purpose, where they feel fully alive? Could you see the difference it would make where, where all of them are leaving, living in fulfillment, all of them are having conversations about what's making them feel fully alive? See, because I believe either theologically, we have to believe that that, that sensation of, you know, that um, for you that are in Christian work, most days, most of you will testify to this fact that most days you sense that if I hoist my sail, God's going to blow his wind into it, right? And so we either have to believe, because we feel like we're living from purpose, so either we have to believe that that sensation of being used by God is reserved only for those have surrendered to vocational Christian service, or it should be the experience of every believer. You see the difference? You can't have one or the other. It's sort of like, well, if you really want to be fulfilled, then you have to go into vocational Christian service. No. Why not you as a leader help everybody under your influence to help discover what that is? I'm going to ask you a question here, and I want you to respond, because the, the theme of the conference is, is, uh, is turning ideas into action. But how many want to change the world? Raise your hand. Yeah. Every hand goes up, except some of you that are writing down the question. We asked this question. <laughs> and do you know something? Because that's the way that God's made you. And your neighbors want to change the world, too. Now, think about this. Every one of us would like to think that in some way that we we're making the world a different place. Now, think from a leadership perspective, that energy, that people already want to do that. Then is your job as a leader anything less than giving people regular opportunities to change the world, is it? What if your success criteria at the end of the world, at the end of the year, is how has God used you to change the world? Wouldn't that be a great success criteria? No matter what you did, how many, let's not talk about how many meetings you went to, how many quiet times you had, what you did in your journal, but how has God used use you to change the world? See, I think this is this is such a slam dunk passage because, see, everybody that's experienced Ephesians 2, 8, 9 should also, by definition, experiencing Ephesians 2, 10, right? I mean, are there any exceptions? I mean, can we say that all of us here have been saved by grace through faith, 
And then this little section over there, they're the ones that have discovered and are living out their Ephesians 2.10 calling. They're the ones that are they're doing the good works that God prepared for them. No. So if, if everybody that's been saved, that's experienced Ephesians 2.8.9, ought to be experiencing Ephesians 2.8.8, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10, then I mean, part of our job as leaders is to get everyone, everyone under our influence, under our domain, under in, in our bailiwick, to be, be living out their Ephesians 2.10 calling. You see, you think, of, you think of it this way, is that, that um, I think, too, even for church. I, was, I, had a, I have a son that serves in China, and I was with him a couple weeks ago, and we're talking about this very thing. And by the way, when he shares his faith, he says this. He, when he uses the four spiritual laws, he says, he said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and part of that plan is to use you to change the world. And these students light up, and, and he tells them about the ministry of Jesus and um, you know, the influence they had on people. And they said, no, what would it be like if every, all of the students on our campus were Christ followers? I said, well, we'd be loving each other, and we'd be looking out for each other. And what about if everyone in our city of six million were followers of Jesus and doing what he did? Well, there'd be no street children. There'd be no hungry people. There'd be no homeless people. And everybody in China would want to move to our city. And so, and so the, the job of leaders, I think, is to, you know, think about this way. We're talking about what church is. What if, what if the, the criteria for inviting your people to your church was this? Come to my church because we're helping to change the world. Come to my church because we're changing the world. Because, see, if you just say, come to my church, we have great worship. Come to my church, we have great teaching. Come to my church, we've got a great children's program. It puts you in a competitive environment because it just means, well, until they, if that's the basis of coming in, then that's the basis of them leaving. Because oftentimes we make the, the agreement with our congregation that unless we can meet your needs, we don't deserve your business. But on the other hand, if they're invited to a church that's changing the world and they want to change the world, most likely they'll want to figure out what's happening in your church. You think that, that God saved us to do good works. You think of why God gives leadership. Remember that passage in Ephesians 4.11 that God gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to do what? To prepare God's people for works of service. Why does God give us his word? 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. Why does God place us in a body? Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. Let us consider how we might stimulate or, stimulate or, or spur one, or, one another on towards love and good deeds. Why does God give gifts? 1 Peter 4, 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. Why does God give wealth? Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Instruct those who are rich not to fix their hope on riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good and be ready to share. See, every major resource God gives us, leaders to prepare us, the word to equip us, um, the body to encourage us, the gifts to enable us, and finances to pay for stuff, all points us to do something as well as be someone. Brendan Manning, the Catholic theologian, said it this way. He said, when we confuse or when we equate being with doing, then a noble thought is as good as washing someone's dirty feet. And aren't we as evangelicals pretty good at having noble thoughts? You know, but, but uh, you know, we substitute noble thoughts for, uh, for noble deeds.
The third thing, these churches believe is they, they understand the power of service. This is, I think, the first diagram we have are the three intersecting circles. If you look at those circles, the, the one on the top is, is, uh, it explains kind of in the city, in a community, every, there's at least three entities that play inside a city. And the first one is the needs and dreams of a city. Uh, every city has, has needs, which are pretty obvious but just by driving around. But also cities have aspirations. They have dreams. They want to become something. They want to be known for something. And so um, in the way in our community that we discovered that is we began inviting city officials in and just asked them, what does your dream of a healthy community look like? So we had two University of Colorado presidents. We had uh, the mayor. We had the chief of police, the chief of the fire department, the heads of different school districts. We brought in um, uh, the district attorney. We brought in uh, different people. And, and to, when they described our commu- the community they wanted to live in, they all described a, a community where I wanted to raise my family. Nobody said we need another liquor store. We want the, the dropout rate of Hispanic students to be even higher than it is. You know, but they, they, no one said we want to pollute Boulder Creek. You know, let's, let's start making that a trash dump. You know, they all described a, a place that I wanted to raise my family in. And... and uh, and that's a good place to begin. The second thing is, is what are the mandates and desires of God? What does God want for a community? I think when God has a chance from scratch to build a city, he tells us what's that like in the scripture. And a good place to begin is Isaiah 65 when he builds the new Jerusalem. And he says, he, and when he designs it, his design parameters, he says, it's going to be a place of incredible joy. It's going to be a place where there's no infant mortality. It's going to be a place where people live fulfilling lives and live out their years. In fact, if a man dies at 100, he's still considered young. He says it's a place where there's, people are going to be fulfilled with the work of their hand. There's going to be meaningful employment. He says it's going to be a place where people dwell together in generations, that the family structure is going to be intact and be healthy. It's going to be a place where the wolf lies down with the lamb. There'll be an absence of violence. So when God sets up the physical structure of a city, that's a good place to be. And what does God want spiritually for a city? I think that's probably best expressed in the words of Jesus. When he overlooks a city and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood, but you were unwilling. That God wants a spiritual reconciliation of the city through Jesus. The third circle on the left there is the calling capacity of the church. Every church has a different capacity, but every church does have a similar calling because God has always given to his people the responsibility of looking out for those people on the margins, those people without a voice, those people without power in your community. So he he, he defines true and undefiled religion as looking out for widows and orphans. Other groups are the sick and the disabled and the elderly and for children, for prisoners and for immigrants. That God has always given his people. So in the Old Testament, for instance, it said, if you had a field, don't harvest the very corners of it, but leave that for the, the widow and the orphan and the poor and the immigrant. If you had a vineyard or an orchard, don't go over that harvest a second time, but leave it for that same group of people. There were laws put in place that every so many years, all debt would be forgiven so you wouldn't have generational poverty. That people had the chance to start over. They were experiencing grace. The third um, the place where the circle gets most interesting, though, is where the circles overlap. And so in that overlap between the needs and dreams of the city and the mandates and desires of God, there's a little space 
that uh, is called common grace. That's the expression that John Calvin used to describe benefits that people get even if they're not Christians. It's that passage that said that God causes rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, just the Christian farmers just don't get rain. Non-Christian farmers get rain too. He's merciful to the just and he's merciful to the unjust. And so expressions of common grace, um, Calvin said, he said the city wall is an expression of common grace that protects believers and unbelievers. So in our communities, you know, public schools are an expression of common grace. Street lights are an expression of common grace. Police protection, fire protection, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, streets without, without potholes. And so what happens is if you see that that's outside the domain of the church, and yet the church has historically been at its best when it has played an advocacy role. In other words, in common grace, if there's some people because they live on this side of the, stra- the tracks are getting good city services, the public schools are really good, etc., and people on this side of the tracks aren't, then the church when it has been at its best when it's played an advocacy role and helped all people experience common grace. Calvin said this, by the way. He said we pay our taxes to procure God's common grace. We pay our tithes to procure God's saving grace. Isn't that good? Sure, that once and a pastor said to me, he said, that's the first rationale why it's ever made sense why we need to pay taxes. It's, to, it's just to help people experience just common grace. You look at the, across the, the opposite of that, there's a little word that says control there, and that's where the needs and dreams of the city overlap with the calling capacity of the church. And, and because control is a fight for power, and so Europe, it's the, it's the state trying to control the church. In the U.S., sometimes it's, it's the church trying to control the state. Now, if we could just get enough Christian politicians uh, you know, elected, then we could get our power back. We could rule from the center. And yet, because it's outside of what God wants, we put that no control, the universal prohibition sign over the word control. The third area of overlap was, is down at the bottom there where the calling, the passing of the church overlaps with the mandates and desires of God. And that's overlap in salvation. In other words, God wants people in the city, everyone to know him, not, not desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And, and yet it's one thing this, this city's not asking for. No city is asking to be saved. When we asked the city officials what a healthy community looks like, none of them said, we need to get our, you know, our city saved. Uh, nor, nor should they have, because that's not their job. But the one sweet spot where what cities want what God wants for the city and churches have capacity to do is to serve and bless their cities. I'll tell you, that, is, that should be a big light bulb for, for most of us. Remember that passage in Jeremiah 29 where all the, the Israelites were carried off into, into Babylon. Now think about it. They, they just had their, whole, their hometown totally destroyed. Many of their relatives killed. They're sitting down by the rivers of Babylon weeping. Everything that, they, that they, was normative about their life was taken away from them. And then God sends them a letter through Jeremiah. He's, and God says, this is what I have to say to you whom I carried into captivity in Babylon. But he talks about settling down and building houses and taking wives. And, and towards the end of that little letter, he says this. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you. For as it prospers, you too will prosper. Can you imagine that? These were their enemies, and yet God says, seek their, their prosperity and pray for this city. And that's, I think, is the admonition that God gives to his people today, because that 
and it's a blessing the city that becomes that wonderful bridge to salvation. Rick um, may or may not, probably, Rick, you can't tell the story now because I'm going to tell it, but the first time we met, we were talking about this very thing, and he said, you know, this is, this is our church. We've been doing this stuff for years. And I said, well, tell me more. And he said, we well, said, last year we had a, a student at, a very, um, at Longmont High School, which is a public high school in town, uh, take his own life. And he's a kid from a very popular family, and so the principal is not a Christian, called me up and said, can you send over uh, 20 grief counselors? Um, yeah just because our kids are falling apart. You can talk to them about Jesus and you can pray with them, but we give you basically three days of unfettered access because we really need your help. And so Rick said, so we sent 20 people over there. Other pastors in town said, well, how do you get access to a public high school when everything we do, we keep getting shut out? And Rick said, well, it's pretty simple. I sent the same 20 people we'd been sending over there to set up chairs at the high school assemblies, to chaperone the dances, and to rake the log and jump pits at the track meet. And the whole idea is because they'd been in there to serve, when the opportunity ministry came along, they were already there. I was over in Riga, Latvia. Anybody know where Latvia is? A few people. Anybody see the episode on Seinfeld where George was thinking about becoming a Latvian Orthodox? Raise your hand. <laughs> Several more of you. Good. But uh, we were in Latvia, and, and uh, I sketched out this diagram, and this old pastor goes, oh, we are a very poor church. What could we ever do to serve the city? This young guy goes, I know what we could do right now. He said, last, last, or two weeks ago, during the first two weeks of school, last month, during the first two weeks of school, we had seven kids killed crossing the streets during the first two weeks of school because we have no crossing guards. He said, if we had two lot or four dollars, we could provide safety vests for our people in church. We could cover every, every crosswalk in, in, in the city. And, and uh, I shared that back with a pastor when I got back in the U.S., and he said, can you imagine the difference it would make? for a, a believer knowing each of these kids by name, asking what they were worried about that day, letting them know they'd be prayed for, and then every day after school, asking them how their day went. So you think that would make a difference in the lives of these kids? And the whole point about this is, is there, there's not, this isn't about a crosswalk ministry, but there's something that your church has capacity to do, you know, that God wants done, that a city wants done, that forms that sweet spot. Um, Rick was telling me we got on the same flight coming down yesterday. He was saying two nights ago, uh, they had a, um, a prom for children with disabilities, teenagers. And would you say, what, Rick, there are about 100, 100 kids there? Now think about that. Think you're a caregiver, you're a parent, and a church sponsors, and they have a, a women's group that helped all the girls get, get fitted for dresses and all that kind of stuff. They just had an evening like many of you have experienced in your life, that special time when your era of music is being played and you're dancing and you look beautiful and they have photographers there and you're having the time of your life, what does that do for people as you serve them and bless them that way? Because, see, there's, a, there's something interesting at play because when people are recipients of unexpected mercy or unexpected grace, they always ask two questions. Who are you and why are you doing this? And as we're engaged in good deeds, that good deeds create goodwill, and goodwill becomes the best platform for sharing good news. A guy called me up a couple years ago and identified himself as a church planter in Cleveland. And I said, that's great. How's things going? He said, well, when we first got here, went to the mayor of Cleveland and said, what can, we do to, what can we do to help? And he hummed and hawed, but after a while he said, well, the government gives us $400 to paint houses of elderly people and disabled people, but $400 barely covers the cost of the paint. Do you guys paint houses? And he said, oh, yeah, we're good at painting houses. 
And he said, we could bring people in from all over the U.S. And I said, well, how's that been going? He said, well, so far we've, we've, um, we've painted 30 houses and seen 25 people come to Christ. I said, well, tell me how the evangelism works. And he said, well, first of all, we're very intentional about evangelism, understanding that when we go in as servants, that we're never more like Jesus than when we're serving. And so we expect them to be active. So sometimes it says the people whose house we're painting, they'll come to Christ. So sometimes it's, it's, he said, with people that are prayer walking in the neighborhood, and those people will come to Christ. So the last one who came to Christ was the next door neighbor that had to come next door to discover why a dozen people would take a week off of work and paint a house for a person they'd never met before. So he came to Christ that started a Bible study in his house and we're hoping to turn it into a church plant. See, the power of service is just absolutely incredible. Hadn't planned on sharing the story, but uh, last week there was a guy in our community. If you ever seen the movie Radio, uh, the TV show Radio, we had a guy like that in our community. His name was John Bro, and John was had a mental disability, but he was always on a bike, and he had two bags of trash, and he was just kind of single-handedly cleaned up our town. He'd be at Starbucks opening the door for people um, uh, at, at Albertsons, the grocery store, shagging carts, but everybody in town knew him. And he got hit by a car um, a week ago, and so the funeral was Saturday at a large church, and over 2,000 people in the community showed up. Not educated, no resources. When he was asked uh, any money that he was given, he would always just buy donuts or coffee for people and take it into workplaces. And there the mayor was there, and the chief of police, and the chief of the fire department. But everyone was given testimony to the impact this one guy had in our community. And, uh, you know, so it's sort of like for 2,000 people to show up at his funeral. And when, they, when, they, when the mayor asked, how many did he, if, you, if John waved at you, raise your hand. All 2,000 people raised their hand. If John did something of kindness to you, raise your hand. And he said when he get home, one of his, uh, his relatives asked this. He said, well, John, where's your hat? Well, I gave it to a friend. Where's your coat? I gave it to a friend. Where are your gloves? I gave it to a friend. Which friends? Well, they're all my friends. And I think God puts people like that in our lives just to show that sometimes we think we don't have the resource to do anything, but just that consistent small things. As Mother Teresa said, there's no such thing as great deeds, only small deeds done with great love, that those are the things that really change the world. And there's this, just this incredible um, power of service. You know, if you look at that next diagram, there's, um, it's a little quad, four quadrants. And there's actually a diagram that comes before that because sometimes we think of good news and good deeds, we put them on a spectrum. And we have, you know, the good news over here and we have people that are like doing good deeds over here. And if your church starts helping the homeless or feeding the hungry and you start moving from evangelism or evangelicalism along this scale, then what do you become accused of? Oh, you're becoming one of those social gospel churches. And you kind of react again, oh, no, you know. But, but it's sort of like, almost like to become one, you have to compromise the other. So instead, by creating this matrix, rather than having an either-or church, why not have a both-and church? Would it be described in the upper right-hand corner? Why not have it as your goal, that our goal is to serve the least of these, and we want to save the lost? Why, why can't we believe that we're most effective when we focus on transforming individuals and communities? You know, focusing just like Jesus on grace and truth. You know, Jesus never had to compromise truth to show grace and vice versa. Actions, as Rick likes to say, show and tell, and the result of being salt and light. Wouldn't that be great? The, um, I think um, when we think about evangelism, too, 
Um, I've said that good deeds create goodwill most of the time, and goodwill becomes a great platform for sharing the good news. But there's something that precedes that, and that's the role of good friends. And it's good friends that help turn good intentions into good deeds. Okay? It's good friends that help turn good intentions into good deeds. In other words, you're more likely, and this is what all the research shows, and I think the research comes out of Baylor, uh, comes out of uh, University of Pennsylvania, but it always says that you're many times more likely to do something with your friends than you do something by yourself. How many have taken a spiritual gift test? Raise your hand. Okay. How many, if after taking a spiritual gift test, then you hear the exhortation, well, now that you know what your gift is, go out and find a place of meaningful service by themselves, went and found a place of meaningful engagement. Raise your hand. Okay, and you're consistent with all, everybody else because I've never found one person that's ever done that. And so, so sometimes we think we're waiting for that opportunity. And my, my supposition is this, is that you're much more likely to do something you don't even want to do with people you like being with than you are ever to find that perfect place of service by yourself. So if you have small groups in your church, um, I just saw Glenn Breckner out here. Raise your hand, Glenn. But Glenn's going to do a seminar on this that uh, all, the, all the small groups at his church always have a missional component. At one out of every four or six times that they meet, instead of meeting, they go engage the community. When I first met Glenn, I said, what's that done for your church? He says, it's been absolutely electric. Because it gets things out of theory and gets things into action. And it's like, if you've ever done evangelism, you want to go talk to that guy? No. Do you? No. Well, let's go. You know, it's, it's kind of the same thing. And, and there's something about the, uh, doing things as a group that really helps us, really helps engage. The last thing is they partner with other entities. I've got a little diagram here, and this is developed by a man named Paul Hebert, a theologian out of Fuller Seminary. And on the diagram on the left is what he calls the bounded set. A bounded set might be a good way to describe um, what, what denominations are. And you might recall from church history that up until the Reformation, there was really only one church with two branches, the, the Roman and the Eastern branch. But unity was incredibly important. You just couldn't start a a Bible study or an alternative service, or I think I'll do something out of my home and invite some neighbors over. Those are the things you got put to death for because unity of belief was, was very, very important. With the Reformation, um, with Calvin and Luther and others, they, not only when they separated, they just weren't saying we're trying something different. They separated on the base of wrongness and rightness. I believe that you are so wrong that I've got to break away from you. I understand how important unity is, but this is so wrong, I've got to start my own thing. And so what happened, so, um, so pretty soon Lutherans, those started separating from Lutherans and, and reform from reform. So today there's approximately 34,000 different denominations, each believing that they're the closest expression for what Jesus wants a New Testament church to be. And aren't you glad you found yourself in the right one? I think when I spoke at chapel here, everyone just nodded their head. But <laughs> got a little more diversity here. Uh, the, um, but that's true. And those dots there, see, the dots represent what you believe. So one might be what you believe about baptism. You know, is it through, through immersion or is it through sprinkling? Is it believer baptism or is it covenantal? What do you believe about the Lord's Supper? Is Jesus at the table or is Jesus on the table? What do you believe about spiritual gifts? Are you a cessationist believing some of the gifts are no longer operative? 
Or do you believe all the gifts are operative? Or do you believe that when a gospel first enters into a culture, all the gifts are operative and then they sort of fade away? You know, but it's those, 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 uh, those different beliefs that separate us one from another. And so the, the reason for having fellowship would be this. When two Christians meet each other and you ask each other a series of questions, oh, you speak in tongues. Well, now we can't have fellowship. You know, there's things that divide us. This is why we can't work together. So instead, Hebert says there's another way of looking at that, and that's, it's not who's in and who's out, but they put a dot at the center and said that center is Jesus. And so if you've ever been, how many men have been to a Promise Keeper conference? Raise your hand here. Remember when you'd walk into the, the stadium and Bill McCartney would walk in and say, it doesn't matter if you're Baptist or you're Methodist or you're Pentecostal or you're Catholic, but if you love Jesus and want to get closer to him, then this conference is for you. And everyone would shout. Everyone would cheer. Because what he was describing is that centered set theology. It's, and, and Hebert makes the point, and this is what the arrows represent, he said it's better to be far away but moving towards Jesus than being next to Jesus and far away. And Rick and I take this diagram and use it even in a secular sense that we say when we partner with, we don't partner with people in the city who share our theology exclusively, but we partner with people in our community that share our concern. Who cares about what we care about? Who cares about underperforming children in our community? Who cares about um, the homeless in our community? Who cares about immigrant issues? Who cares about children of prisoners? All those people make great partners. Especially, so we'll say that, that it's, it's people of faith working together with people of goodwill. That we can work with anybody that's morally positive and spiritually neutral. If they don't have a spiritual agenda and are looking for volunteers, they become great organizations. But we don't need to spend kingdom resources again starting something that already exists through God's common grace in our community. The last, uh, last little diagram I have there, because the whole theme of this conference is transforming ideas into action. Is how to how to kind of how change comes to any organization, and you might be hearing this talk today and the talks that you're going to hear these next couple of days and think, man, my church is so far from this thing. For me to lead my church in doing this, it's almost impossible. And the reason I like this diagram, it's a diagram uh, called the Diffusion of Innovations by a man named Everett Rogers out of the University of New Mexico. But he talks about how change comes to any system, and he says that about three percent of the population are innovators. That those are people that come up with ideas. They, they just organize the world differently. They just, um, they just see things with new eyes. Next 13% are what he calls early adopters. And those are the people, when they hear the ideas, they say, I can do that. I don't care if anybody else in the world is doing it. I get it. I'm going to start doing it. I'm starting doing it right now. So some of you that are early adopters, and there will be about a dozen of you in, this, in a crowd this size, you will get on your cell phone as soon as you got on here, get on your BlackBerry. Whoever the person that needs to take you to the next step, that will be your action point. Another 34%, which takes us to the midline, are what he calls middle adopters. Those people say this. They say, I believe, I understand the concept, but is this actually working anyplace? Can you show me a model of where it's working? Another 34% are called the late adopters, and they're the ones that say, is, you know, I, I believe that this can happen in Little Rock, Arkansas, but are there any places, you know, in Texas, in the West, you know, or the Northwest where this is working? Is, there, is, there, is it working in a setting like mine uh, for them to be convinced? The last 16% are what are called laggards, and they're the last to get on board. And, as a friend of mine notes, usually end up serving on boards. And, and it usually gets a little chuckle like that, but... 
The reason it's true is that boards are put in place to preserve the status quo so the leadership isn't going from one conference and saying, this is what we ought to be doing, going to another conference saying, no, I was wrong, this is what we ought to be doing, and the whole organization get whips up. So they're put in place to bring stability to the organizations. But the whole idea here, if you look at this diagram, why it's my favorite leadership diagram, is that you never have to have 51% buy-in to move forward because you will never get it. Even if you have, you've been at your church for 30 years and you have tremendous uh, equity, emotional equity with the people, you can get everybody to raise their hand, everybody stand, but only 16% are capable of acting anyway. So, if sometimes you, so this is why you don't want to vote on a lot of things because if you don't get 51% buy-in, you say, well, I don't really have the mandate to lead, then you don't do it. Instead of what you do, you go home and you start doing it or you cast the vision for it and find out who's responsive then give your resource to them and help them tell their stories. You see that? Because each group is only influenced by the group ahead of it. The, the, the early adopters never look to the late adopters for what they ought to be doing. They're always looking to the, the innovators. You know, the middle adopters look to the early adopters, the late adopters, etc. And then the laggards either eventually get on board or they leave. The bad thing about this diagram, though, or another insightful thing about the diagram, is that influence can sometimes work the other way. That is to say, if the people that are laggards are people in power, and they say, well, that'll never work, then the late adopters say, well, that's what we're thinking, Pastor. And then influence goes this way, and the people over here, the innovators and the early adopters, are either marginalized if they're lay people or they're, they're let go if they're staff. Have you experienced that? Has that, hasn't that been your experience? And so when you leave this, you're going to get so many good ideas here, and you can go home and be successful if only just a handful of people respond to the new thing. But then what you want to do, you want to position them where they can tell their stories. Then all those people that are looking for the model, they've just created a model. So if you go home and you find three or four small groups that really want to make engaging in the community just part of the, what it means to be a small group at your church, then position them to tell their stories, then all the other ones will say, you know, it seems to me that our biggest challenge is always just finding, you know, what should we study next? Why can't we do what that other group's doing who's getting engaged with uh, foster kids or something like that, the NAIDS initiative? Because yeah, they seem to be having a whole lot more fun than we're having. So I think, too, is that the new age that we're moving into, and, and I, don't, I don't use that pejoratively, but the new thing that God's doing is shifting from... You know, God seems to have different phases, you know, church growth, church health, mega church thing. But it's, it's sort of like this, is that pastors are really trying to become the best church in the community. And when everybody's trying to become the best church in the community, it creates a competitive environment because you're, you're, you're competing for environments. And I want to suggest that as we begin our time that we just change the preposition. That, that this externally focused movement is not how to become the best church in the community, but how can we become the best church for the community. And when we compete in that space, we're without competition. You know, that we're, that we're alone. If we want to be the best church for the community, we're the ones without any competition at all.